Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. This is Josh Popachek, your host for No Rain Date, your podcast for local news and interviews in the Saucon Valley and beyond. And I'm here with the headlines for the week ending January 23rd, 2021. Once again, it has been a very busy news week, not only locally, but nationally. This week, of course, we had the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden. Of course, that was a very different inauguration from ones that have taken place in the past due to the coronavirus pandemic. We knew that that would affect the ability of people to attend the inauguration. So, of course, it was much smaller than it typically is. However, it was even smaller than it would have been due to the attack on the U.S. Capitol that occurred exactly two weeks earlier on January 6th. There was heavy, heavy security around the Capitol and all throughout Washington, D.C. leading up to the inauguration. It was basically described as a city on lockdown with about 25,000 National Guard troops stationed in and around the city to protect democracy, essentially, and of course to help ensure that the inauguration went smoothly, and it did, although I can say that there were many people that were apprehensive about it being held outside. I think you saw that the day before there was a small fire, totally unrelated to any type of domestic terrorism, but the reaction to that was sort of panic among the people that were rehearsing for the inauguration at that point. But like I said, it did go smoothly. I'm sure it was watched by tens, if not hundreds of millions of people worldwide after the incredible and tumultuous election that we had in 2020, and then the two months of divisiveness that followed with Donald Trump refusing to concede to Joe Biden, and ultimately, of course, Trump did not attend the inauguration, becoming the first president to do that in 152 years previous to... Wednesday. The last president to do that was Andrew Johnson in 1869. And interestingly, Johnson is also a president who was impeached. The investigations into the attack that occurred on January 6th at the Capitol are, of course, ongoing. This isn't something that is ending just because we have a new administration. If anything, it might be ramping up every day. We're receiving reports of additional people arrested and charged in connection with the insurrection at the Capitol. And I believe that ultimately we will probably see hundreds of people charged in connection with it. In the last week, there have been additional people from Pennsylvania charged, including one man from Lehigh County. His name is Craig Bingert, and he's 29. The Morning Call reported on his arrest. He's from Washington Township, which is uh, just outside Slatington. He's charged with a number of offenses related to the attack. His lawyer was interviewed for 
the morning call story or one of them and urged the community to withhold judgment about his client's activities. It's acknowledged by his attorney and apparent from video that he was at the Capitol, but I guess the question that will be decided in the future, or answered rather, is whether he was actively participating in attacking it and going inside it. I have not seen any evidence of that specifically, but as I said, this is a monumental investigation with many moving parts. Craig Bingert is one of, I believe, at least five or six Pennsylvania people that have been charged at this point. Another one is a man from the Jim Thorpe area, and then a woman from Harrisburg is accused of potentially having stolen House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's laptop, and it's been reported in mainstream media that she's being investigated for the possibility that she was attempting to sell the laptop to Russian intelligence agencies. Of course, that would be a pretty high crime if they could prove that. That sort of like gets into the area of of potentially treasonous offenses because you're talking about international security being at stake. And so interesting to have these individuals from our Keystone State involved in this. We were privileged to publish a column several days ago by a high school student, James Townsend. James is a junior at Saucon Valley High School, and he actually reached out to Saucon Source a couple weeks ago and expressed interest in writing a regular column about his views on current events and things that, you know, are affecting him and other teenagers in the Saucon Valley area, and he's a very good writer. He wrote about how due to the fact that so many things have happened in the last year with COVID-19 and racial injustice protests, Black Lives Matter protests, and of course the election. When the Capitol attack happened, he, he sort of felt almost numb to it. He feels that he and a lot of other teens are desensitized to these kinds of incredibly shocking news events, which I can understand Another reason being that they are totally technologically connected all the time. Whereas when I was growing up, we did not have that 24-hour news cycle. That also contributes to desensitization, I would imagine. Another factor that he explored was the role that teachers may or may not play, specifically because... When events like this happen, they're really not being talked about in classrooms, certainly not at Saucon Valley and probably not at other high schools too. And I definitely believe that has to do with politics, but that's unfortunate because we're living through history and we can't pretend that it's not happening because it's you know convenient to do that. And of course I sympathize with teachers because you don't want to say the wrong thing. And students, you know, are not political in the same way as adults, but they certainly maybe share views that their parents have. On the other hand, I think that it does students a disservice not to at least acknowledge that something momentous has happened 
and maybe just to go around the room and say, well, what were your initial thoughts you know, when you saw photos of the Capitol being attacked or what did you think, how did, how did you feel? That at least demonstrates to them that, hey, this is significant. We're deviating from our regular curriculum to talk about something that's happening in the news right now. And maybe that would lead to less desensitizing of students if we had that happen. I know when I was in high school, we did talk about major current events. If they happened, we did not have anything as big as what happened January 6th. And 9-11, which is the previous biggest event that I can compare to January 6th, happened after I was out of school. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I'm looking forward to James writing additional columns for us. And I think he will be a great voice for his peers in doing that. So definitely look for his writing on Sock and Source at some point in the future. We have several unusual sort of crime stories on Sock and Source this week. One that has been reported by other outlets in addition to Sock and Source is about a woman arrested and charged in Hellertown after she allegedly accosted a worker inside the Sitgo convenience store on Main Street. According to police, she went behind the counter and stole a couple packs of cigarettes, pushed the employee when confronted, and then as she was running out the door, grabbed Mentos, a couple packs of those mints. And from there it gets even stranger because police say that she then attempted to flee the scene in an ambulance, which was parked nearby. However, for whatever reason, she couldn't start the ambulance, allegedly, and didn't get very far before police say they arrested her about a block away from the store. Another story that we reported on involved a dispute over a face mask at a honey stand on Route 663 in Milford Township. That's near Quakertown. It was actually at the Quakertown honey stand. This happened earlier this month, according to state police. A customer walked into the store without wearing a mask. Another patron who was already in the store said something to the man and asked him to put on a mask. And when he refused, the customer who was already in the store pushed him. Police did not identify the individual who pushed him, and apparently they are looking for him as part of their investigation. So we have had a number of stories along these lines over the past 10 months. Clearly, there's still not 100% compliance with mask wearing, even though there is a state order in place that requires it in businesses unless you have a medical condition. This week, as one of his first executive orders, President Biden instituted a national mask mandate for federal property And that also includes airlines. So anybody flying on a plane now is going to be required, although it was being required by individual airlines, but this will probably strengthen that requirement. I'm curious to learn more about whether this will impact post offices because those are considered federal property. And they're one of the few examples of federal property that we have here at the local level 
of course, we have the federal courthouse in Allentown, but most people don't go there on a regular basis. However, they do go to the post office, and like anywhere else, the post office has had to deal with the challenge of enforcing or, you know, not enforcing wearing a mask. Either way, it's a challenge because either way, you're going to have pretty upset customers. So, We will continue to follow that. Certainly, the Biden administration is making the response to the coronavirus pandemic a priority. And it's a good time for that because the death toll continues to be very high. New cases have gone down a bit. However, they could easily go up again. The vaccine rollout has been criticized at the national level and at the state level. Just today, there were news reports about Pennsylvania's ability to continue with its vaccination program. Several days ago, the program expanded to the next tier of eligibility, meaning that individuals who are 65 and over, as well as individuals who are, I believe, 14 to 65 and have a chronic health condition are now eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Supply, however, is an issue, and it's not necessarily readily available to everyone who wants it. Pharmacies apparently are being overwhelmed with calls by people who want to schedule an appointment to get it. Meanwhile, the production of the vaccine is apparently not totally up to speed, and there could be a period of of difficulty in getting it in the next several months. That sort of seems to be the the message reading between the lines of a lot of these reports. Of course, it is available, but the way it is being distributed and, and with so many agencies involved and up until now, no national coordinated strategy has caused a lot of confusion. Our hearts, of course, go out to anybody who's trying to get it and feeling frustrated to the frontline workers who are trying to administer it. Everybody's doing the best they can, but there are a lot of uh, complexities in this situation. And we are committed to providing our readers with useful information about how to get the vaccine, when to get the vaccine, who will qualify. We had a, a great story that our freelancer, Johnny Hart, wrote the other week about a virtual town hall that was held. Many questions were answered about the vaccine distribution. So I would encourage you to read that. It's still on the homepage, sockandsource.com. Dr. Rachel Levine, who's the Secretary of Health for Pennsylvania, was part of the town hall and answered questions from residents throughout the state. But this was specifically hosted by State Senator Lisa Boscola, who represents our area in the state Senate. Speaking of Dr. Levine, she has been tapped by the Biden administration to potentially be the Assistant Secretary of Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is an honor not only for Pennsylvania, but it's a historic moment because if she is approved by the Senate, Dr. Levine will become the highest-ranking, openly transgender federal official. Dr. Levine has certainly been a prominent voice throughout the coronavirus pandemic, giving regular updates and leading news conferences, and of course, issuing orders to help mitigate the spread of the disease throughout the state. That definitely helped elevate her her national profile, and she has 
generally been receiving wide praise for this nomination, which could be progressing swiftly, especially since the Department of Health and Human Services is involved in the response to the coronavirus pandemic. I would imagine that lawmakers will want to prioritize a decision on her nomination. We also have a story currently about St. Luke's University Health Network and their use of monoclonal antibodies to help treat COVID-19 patients. You've probably heard about the antibody treatment, which has been around at least since the fall. I believe St. Luke's introduced it in November, and they just celebrated their 500th successful treatment of a patient with it. Really, it sounds like it's almost a miraculous type of effect that it can have on somebody who is having difficulty breathing or other severe symptoms from COVID-19. This, of course, involves the use of antibodies from plasma from patients who have previously had COVID-19, and there's a continuous need to get healthy, recovered COVID-19 patients to donate plasma so that they can use these antibodies to treat current patients. So if you are somebody who's had it in the past, you might want to consider donating plasma for that purpose. Miller Keystone is the local blood bank where you can do that. And we have also published content regarding how to do that. Certainly, it doesn't seem like the need is going to be going away anytime soon. So check out the options available to you and and please consider helping somebody else in need. Lastly, I want to just highlight again the fact that this week was Hellertown Lower Saucon Winter Restaurant Week. We had 18 participating establishments, which is awesome. Hopefully you got out and supported some of the restaurants, many of whom are offering deals on takeout. You don't have to dine in since many people still don't feel comfortable doing that. Many restaurants do offer limited seating for dine-in, but typically you have to make a reservation at this point. There's just a great variety of deals from the establishments that have participated, and we wish them all well. We hope it went well, and we hope you enjoyed it if you were out and about and got some great food or beer or wine. It's important to support our local businesses on an ongoing basis and to be mindful of making choices that will benefit our community as a whole. So that's the news roundup for this week, the week ending January 23rd, 2021. 2021 is shaping up to be a a busy year and we will be here to cover all the news that impacts you here in the Saucon Valley and beyond. Here at Saucon Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership 
is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. It's my pleasure this week on No Rain Date to welcome Matt Hangeveld, who is one owner and manager of Lit Coffee Roastery and Bake Shop in Bethlehem. And Matt is also co-owner of Monocacy Coffee Company, which provides all the coffee for the bake shop. Welcome to No Rain Date. Hey, how's it going, Josh? Great to be here, or digitally here. <laughs> yeah. Things are, are still different for sure, but, but we're glad to be able to connect with you remotely and, and talk about a subject that's always near and dear to my heart, coffee. <laughs> I drink it daily and I couldn't live without it, so I always love to, to talk about it with a fellow coffee lover. And you must be a big coffee lover because your business is all about coffee. You kind of have to, yeah. <laughs> it's more about quality than quantity, though, you know. I, I, people always ask, am I drinking 10, 15 cups of coffee a day? I prefer just one really good one over 10 or 15. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think coffee culture has, has evolved somewhat because I remember as a kid, it was just like, let's just drink, you know, whatever's in the coffee mm -hmm. pot, but all day long, you know, like. Now it's a little more sophisticated, so I'm sure uh, Monocacy... It's a dynamic industry, always changing some, some new trend or, you know, it, it's always an interesting uh, interesting field to be in. Mm-hmm, right. I feel like it was like in the 90s maybe when I first became aware of like Starbucks and, you know, sort of like gourmet coffee or, you know, higher-end yeah. coffee. Talk, talk a little you know, bit about that. kind of like mom and pop type companies doing all the roasting for you know decades and decades and it wasn't really until like the mid 2000s where people really started saying hey we can do this a little bit better and source coffee that are just uh, a little bit more know-how done to the cultivation of the coffee and then when it reaches to the roaster you know knowing how to make that coffee the best it can be it's kind of hard digging through a lot of the nomenclature that kind of came up in the coffee world before all of that movement started taking place because there's a lot of misinformation as far as, you know, what a dark roast means, what a light roast means. And, you know, our sort of approach is just to say, we're going to roast this so it tastes 
absolutely best for the bean that we sourced. And that's kind of what makes us a little bit different. Mm. Now, how do you learn to do that? I mean, where do you like study coffee roasting and how did you learn? Well, there are programs that they exist, but for Dan and I, my business partner and I, we really just took to the internet. There are so many home roasting forums, online YouTube channels. You can really teach yourself how to do a lot of things nowadays, but this is just something that we had like a vague interest in. We didn't really know how to do it. About, I want to say 2013, I bought a, it's called a Whirly Pop. It's like a popcorn maker. That's uh, just for your stove top. But I read online that you can use that to roast very small batches of coffee at home. I just started ordering coffee from, there's websites like sweetmarias.com where you can say, I just want a half a pound of this type of coffee bean, and they'll send you an unroasted version of that bean. And you can pretty much just have at it and give it a shot. The first time I did it, I burnt it and <laughs> sent my uh, fire alarm off. Oh, my. It was great. <laughs> After like six or seven tries, I started figuring out, okay, how do I achieve a light roast? How do I achieve a dark roast? But then it's just kind of repetition, just kind of learning how to treat certain beans. It's, there's a lot of science behind it, but it's also a lot of consistency and sort of control that you have as the roaster. Just pretty much figuring out how to take advantage of all those variables as best as you can. That just takes time, like anything else, but it's really rewarding. And uh, when people can kind of taste your product and say, oh, this is quite a bit different than, you know, what I would get at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, it's a really gratifying uh, experience. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm sure you're putting a lot of work into that. And, and that sort of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, there are so many different types of beans like and and with different flavor qualities like how do you know which bean to roast like which way like like kona coffee versus you know jamaican or something yeah you know it's one of those things where as i said before there's all this nomenclature that kind of come into existence over the years a lot of it comes from like starbucks or dunkin donuts or even like Pete's coffee out of the west coast and some of it still does pertain to what is going on in the specialty coffee industry. Some of it's a little bit antiquated. What I've found is that some of the most important factors of what goes into a coffee is really how that coffee bean is treated after it's removed from the plant. Because it's not actually a bean, like you would get like baked beans or something like that. It's actually a seed. Just like any other seed, like you get, you know, roasting just like, you know, pumpkin seeds or something like that. You know, it, you're going to you're gonna just pretty much be cooking it. And it's pretty much the same science as what goes on behind, you know, any, like, making toast, grilling a steak. The same scientific principles go into play there. But what really makes a flavor change is really how those beans are treated after they're pulled from the plant. The biggest thing is washed processing or natural processing. And all that really means is how much of the sugar content of the coffee fruit made it into the seed and also when that happened how much fermentation occurred and in that case it gets very scientific and but what i've learned is that natural process means a heavier slightly darker maybe a little bit more fruity coffee a washed coffee means a lot more crisp a lot more pointed and, and a little bit more on the specialty end of the spectrum when it comes to you know getting these really crisp bright notes and 
Honestly, both styles kind of have their pros and cons to them, especially when it comes to what should I use in espresso or cold brewing. Really, those are the things where it's very intricate and very hard to explain to customers, like, that's where you really want to know the difference. And especially when you go to the grocery store and they break things down by, here's our dark rose, here's our light rose, or here's a coffee from Peru, or here's a coffee from Ethiopia. But the truth is, in most cases, there's a lot more going on in that coffee bean than just those designators. And parsing through that can take some time, but I think that's what really draws people to my industry, the specialty coffee industry, because there is so much complexity to it. You can find two different coffee beans grown in the same region, possibly only a couple miles apart, and they can taste wildly different at the exact same roast level. And it's one of those things where it's just a little bit adventurous. And it's also one of those things where you kind of have to enjoy it in the moment. Because even if you really enjoy a good batch of coffee from, let's just say, Guatemala, Mm -hmm. and you source it again the next year from the exact same farm, it's going to taste totally different. Right. So it's kind of like wines in that way. But I think the complexities are really what draws people in. And uh, it's a real sort of cheap sort of gift you can give yourself to say, you know, oh, I went out and bought, you know, instead of paying like $9 for a bag of coffee, I paid $12 for a bag of coffee, but it's got all this other flavor notes, all this other complexity, and it's kind of just a treat you can give yourself that, you know, most people can kind of afford. And I think, I think it's very telling that the industry took off right after the market crash, like the late 2000s. A lot of people were just kind of looking for something that can draw their interest, but isn't going to cost that much money. And Hmm. I think that was a big driving factor for the whole industry. Right. It's sort of like an attainable luxury in a way. Exactly. Yeah. What are your thoughts about, and I'm, I'm curious to know about like, like flavored coffees, like where they, you know, roast it, but they also add like some type of flavor. I'm thinking of this, this coffee shop that I go to on vacation. They have hundreds of them. You know, there are many coffees you can find, you know, we kind of take the approach that every coffee has its optimal roast level and we're kind of very, you know, strict about that sort of aspect, but Mm -hmm. we met coffee roasters from all over the place and we're very good friends with a lot of different roasters. I've met roasters in New York City and Pittsburgh and each one kind of takes their own approach. I've met people who are totally down with adding like blueberry flavoring or things like that. And and if that's what they want and that's what their customers enjoy, that's totally cool. You know, I don't find any sort of like blasphemy going on with that. (laughs) Uh, We prefer to stick away from that. We we try to stay away from really, really dark roasted coffee as well, just because it's kind of like if you're buying a really nice, you know, cut of steak, for example. If you do it well done, you're really just tasting the char, the right. parts of like the, the flavor imparted by the grill, not necessarily what's inherently quality about that meat. It's kind of the same thing with coffee. If a farm really took their time and said, we're going to make sure that this is a, a washed processed coffee, we're going to make sure that it's, it's set out for the proper amount of time, everything was taken care of when it comes to importing, when it arrives on the roasting end, everything's been as is well taken care of, sorted as well as possible, you know, we're going to want to make sure that that coffee comes out tasting as best as possible and and what the farmer intended. 
a coffee roaster isn't necessarily someone who is just determining the flavor of something. I look at it much more as like an equalizer, like a, from an audio mixer standpoint, just trying to find these bits and pieces that are going to taste the best and pinpointing where you can change your roasting process to optimize that. And it's something that there's a lot of science behind. There's dozens and dozens of books written out there. And, you know, if anyone ever is interested, they can always send me a message right from our website asking questions about that because I'm, I'm always happy to see people roasting coffee on their own and it's really something i love nerding out about <laughs> uh, but there's so much out there so many resources that people can use to learn how to you know do this on their own and where the quality exists within the industry that's one of the things i was going to ask you if, we, if you have like many customers who are you know sort of like coffee nerds like you like to come in and talk about coffee and you know I roasted it this way and this you know, happened or <laughs> that was definitely one of the more eye-opening things for me because i came into it opening our coffee shop lit coffee roastery and bake shop with the idea that i'm going to draw in customers who are just as nerdy about as coffee as i am and you know i have drawn in quite a few people who are that way but i've definitely drawn in a lot more people who are just like i just want a good cup of coffee <laughs> i don't want to know all the science behind it that's me uh, yeah <laughs> it's definitely there's definitely a good mix of people who you know i could talk their ear off and they love hearing about it other people are like you know that all went over my head and i appreciate both standpoints from that in the end my goal is to make a great cup of coffee that will keep you coming back and something that in the end is giving our area, because we, we do keep Monocacy coffee pretty much contained within the Lehigh Valley. All of our wholesale is here. 90% of our retail is right here. It's really a taste that we're trying to impart to the Lehigh Valley and try to make something unique, a product that people really can't get from anywhere else. So we've got a lot of people who really kind of look at our coffee as a piece of identity for the Lehigh Valley and Bethlehem and sort of a banner of this is what we do around here. I'm really proud of that. No, definitely. And the name itself, Monocacy Coffee, kind of tells you where it's from. It kind of places it in Bethlehem, right? It's funny. I, I will, I'll talk to a customer sometime in like Easton, for example, and they're trying to spell out the name Monocacy, Monocacy, or something like that. And I have to say, no, it's a creek that runs through Bethlehem. You know where Music Fest is. It always floods. <laughs> Usually by that point, they're like, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, but it is something that we want to use as a stamp of, you know, this is for, you know, uh, this is a product that is made by us, for us. Really, we want to have as a uh, thing that really emboldens our local food economy and makes, you know, other young entrepreneurs kind of give them the spark to know that this can work and this is something that, you know, you can achieve. I know I've seen it, like, on the menu at certain restaurants around here? Yep, yep. We work with several really excellent restaurants. I'd say our first big account that we are always happy with and, you know, we, we are great friends with are Jum Bars in Bethlehem. We've worked with Bomb Place Brewing. We work with Molinari's. We work with a handful of, of coffee shops in the area. Cafe The Lodge, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just did a in-house beer with Weyerbacher just a few weeks ago. It's just really great to be able to incorporate our product with other brands that we really, you know, put our money behind and who we really believe in. And, and it's a really great experience just being able to walk into someone else's restaurant and getting to know them and see how they run things and, and kind of like 
build that sort of business to business repertoire with them. It's really rewarding. What about like farmers markets? Because I know the farmers market scene has gotten pretty big in the Lehigh Valley, and they often yeah. have coffee there. Farmers markets are fun, but I will tell you, farmers markets will take like they will suck the soul out of you very quickly, <laughs> especially after a couple weeks of you know, hey, you got here, it's raining, yeah. you're gonna stand here for six hours. Then the next week you come, hey, it's raining, we're gonna stand here for six hours. It's something that's really great. However, I think we burnt out on them on a little for a little while. Yeah. Uh, we're willing to try it out again. But for us, uh, now that we have the brick and mortar, we can you know we can stay out of the element and uh, sort of have right. a, a roof over our head. And it also you know we've noticed when we departed. For for instance, we were at the Saucon Valley Farmers Market for about I believe two seasons there. And when we left, another smaller roaster actually came in and took our place. And that was really pretty cool to see like oh wow we didn't even know that there was another roaster that had just gotten started i think those are great places for businesses that are just trying to get their feet on the ground mm-hmm. an excellent way to get a new clientele we first started with the rodale organic farmers market in allentown and it was such a small market it only had six vendors we were in the ymca parking lot on 15th street and we get maybe like seven customers a day. And it was it was a little depressing at first, but we realized that's where we met Melanie, who owns Made by Lino, our partner baker at a Lit Coffee Roaster Bake Shop. She's the, the bake shop portion. And if it weren't for that market, Lit wouldn't have existed. Hmm. Um, it's a great place to network and really kind of show your stuff and really find out how to run your business. If it weren't for those sort of growing moments at these farmers markets I don't think we would have gotten our feet on the ground it's great that they're there and honestly I make sure to go to as many as I can because it's always awesome to see a new small business popping up out of woodwork <laughs> yeah no that's that's a great point that they do they do sort of function as incubators and I've seen that myself mm-hmm. want to touch on the last year and COVID-19 it's obviously had an impact on everybody that has a brick and mortar business, but even more so like food type businesses. What has your response been to it and and how have you evolved and adapted? Well, our sort of approach, and and I'll be honest, we took away in-house seating on March, I believe it was 17th, right when everything was starting to get very scary. And we actually have not reintroduced. We pretty much have gotten the sense that people right now are looking for consistency, looking to be able to rebuild their sort of day-to-day schedule, even if it isn't what it used to be. They would love to know that, you know, in two weeks from now, we're still going to be there serving what we serve as we serve it. So we, we've never brought back feeding to the cafe. It's all been takeout, and that's actually worked out in our favor, I think. Looking at looking at some businesses that are kind of always existing at the brink of legality where one week you can have speeding and two weeks later oh there's no more speeding right now that becomes jarring for your customer base Mm -hmm. at least in my opinion and i think for us we're really just trying to take the tiniest tiniest baby steps back towards normality and knowing that when we make that step the intention is never to take that step back obviously unless it is a necessity but the idea is to be so cautious about that to know that you know when i make that step it's because it we're here and we're back for like for good 
so when it comes to reopening the dining area for you know sit down cafe when we make that decision we'll know that it's the time to do it and that it won't be something that's going to be you know the rug pulled from underneath us at any point but it has been very hard it, it's been a very nerve-wracking 10 months now we've been in this you know we're thankful so many of our customers have come out to support us very early on we actually had a friend of the business speak to i'm not really even sure how they managed to do this but melody was able to get on a live stream with alicia keys and was able to raise almost six thousand dollars for our employees just from that that exposure and you know that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the people out there who, who believe in us and really were out there you know waving the flag of saying look at what's happening in this business with what, what these people are doing it's big things like that but also the very small things knowing that you know every day uh some of our regular people like zach kathleen folks that i see every single day when the business is open knowing that they're going to be there and then they're there to support us that becomes such like a silver lining to everything that's happened here to know that we've been able to build that repertoire with people that they view us as part of their identity part of something that if we were to if they were to lose us they would feel a part of themselves would be lost too and that's really humbling for me and really kind of is the essence of why i wanted to get into this business why i wanted to provide something like this for my community and and it, it feels very good to have so many people supporting us right now no, that's that's great to hear that that you've had that support because yeah, customers have had to adapt to and change their their expectations. I yeah. I'm and sure. Just so glad people can you know look at the changes we've made and just say this is something I can work with, and and I can count on my hands how many times you know people have ever complained about it, which is you know talking to other business owners. It's a, it's a really good sign as far as how much the people who care about our coffee shop, you know, how much they, they've built their identity around it. Where do you see the coffee scene in the Lehigh Valley heading? Do you think that the market is becoming, has become somewhat saturated with, with coffee, you know, independent coffee houses now? or You know, there was a little while there where there was a new coffee shop popping up every other week. Some of them survived, some of them did not. And, you know, it, it comes a bit of like a a bit of a fad here and there honestly kind of looking forward to the idea of having a specialty coffee roaster in the neighborhood being just a normal thing it doesn't necessarily have to be a overwhelmingly fancy experience it, it's just something that people almost take for granted that we have a coffee roaster the same way that you would have a farmer you would have a you know, a cheesemaker, things like that. Before I got into any coffee roasting, I was really involved with the Bethlehem Food Co-op. I was actually one of the inaugural board members for them. That experience really showed me just how many incredibly talented, you know, different artisanal food makers, whether it's wineries, breweries, cheesemakers, bread makers, so on and so on, that are actually out there and are building our sort of food economy in the area. And, and it was kind of, you know, for me, just the, the, the catalyst for me to grow my company to kind of became a uh, point of pride for our entire area to see all of these things in the Lehigh Valley. 
and I think that's where we're going as far as you know whether it's just the coffee industry or just specialized food in general I think we need to kind of take a step into that mom-and-pop business direction maybe look at the foods that we're getting at grocery stores and saying is, is this the most responsible thing to be doing purchasing this product this product this product or could I be buying it from a local provider because when you do buy something from a local provider something like 40 cents on the dollar more are being invested into your community whether it is like jobs or if you know for instance a lot of the baked goods that we make at lit do utilize products from local farms because of that you know you're emboldening everyone and it is building a sort of localized point of pride for people and it seems like not that big of a thing but when you consider how many jobs are created by just small businesses here it, it really becomes eye-opening how important it is that we're protecting that yeah no and, and we actually recently had carol ritter who's on the board of the bethlehem food co-op on no rain data as a guest and and it was wonderful to hear about the vision and that it's coming so close to fruition now and i'm sure we'll be able to buy monocacy coffee there once once it's open so hopefully yeah, yeah. i'm hoping to I, I worked very closely with a lot of the folks who are still very involved there when i was on the board i was there until we started roasting coffee like as a, a more full-time sort of thing once i kind of you know left my involvement there it was just great to to see it grow from afar and you know food co-ops are all member owner based so everybody who who becomes a member owns an equal portion so building up enough money that way to actually open up a brick and mortar shop becomes very you know daunting which is why you know a project like this doesn't you don't look at it in the span of months but you look at it in the span of years and you know i'm so proud to see that you know that's a project that not only like was I involved with dozens and dozens of really talented, really, you know, Lehigh Valley-centric sort of providers that kind of come together to make it happen. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, when it comes time to announce it, you know, doors opening and things, I'll be, I'll be first in line. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and be number two, because I'm excited, definitely excited for it. And, uh, big believer in improving access to to quality food in the Lehigh Valley, yeah. particularly in the urban areas. That's a very important thing. People don't realize a lot of the areas that we drive through and go, you know, they're, they're food deserts. Mm-hmm. If you're not able to jump into a car and drive, you're going to be out of luck. You're, you, can't, you can't easily just walk all the way from, you know, downtown Bethlehem up to Wegmans. It's not the simplest thing. And, and there are some places where you can buy your stuff, but finding organic and, you know, nutritious food becomes a very difficult thing, particularly when you're when you're working on a budget. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, food deserts or their borderline, it's uh, definitely something that, that I think about. I mean, I live in Fountain Hill, and there's not a lot of markets with like good quality produce close by we had a supermarket that closed you know after only a couple years in business there so you know that was kind of disheartening to see that but the idea of having something sustainable like like a food co-op definitely is hopeful gives me hope you know for some people like the idea of that sort of cooperative method seems like very you know new and, and and like almost alien, but it's really something that's been around for years and years and years, uh, cooperatives and 
sort of the idea that you know a bunch of smaller providers getting together to, to produce one larger product. You know, we see that throughout even the coffee world, or we'll source some of our coffees from a cooperative, where it's a bunch of tiny, tiny, small growers that have gotten together to, to put the product together and uh, make one, you know, large product where they can ship that to us and we can sell it under their full name. It's a time-tested valid way of running a business and I can't wait to see it take off. Fantastic. I just want to sort of close out by, you know, highlighting your website. That's monocacycoffee.com and there's more information there about the coffee itself and and lit. Where else can people purchase it? Like buy the bag or they can do that online? Yeah, you know, the easiest way to do it is Honestly, if you're in a pinch and the lit is open, just run it to the shop. We've got a shelf there that's always full of coffee. You can grab it, take it to the register, and it's yours. But if you're just so happen realizing, hey, I'm just about out of coffee, I can't make it to the shop, or it's a little bit out, out of the way for my commute, you can always go to monocacycoffee.com, click the Our Coffee section. Each coffee has its own description. We keep it as brief as possible so to not you know, overwhelm you with what sort of information is out there. But just kind of say, you know, oh, this is a sweeter coffee or this is a good coffee for breakfast. You can pick it up there. You can select either to pick it up at our shop. In some zip codes, we will do local delivery, but we'll drive it to you. Otherwise, you just have to pay for shipping, which isn't terribly expensive. But also, if you're in the need, in need for like a, a cookie and a cup of coffee, you can also always order online at lit610.com for the cafe. And we do offer curbside as well as just takeout options for the, the time being. And I should mention that you are lo- lit is located at 26 East Third Street in Bethlehem. Yep. And your current hours yep. are Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's a, right now. It is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 9 to 4 p.m. We actually just extended that. Okay. And then Saturday from 9 to 2 p.m. And hopefully we'll be bringing Tuesdays on as time comes. And, you know, as I said before, baby steps back to being normal. But as we uh, kind of figure out what we're able to do as far as uh, with our, our baristas and what we can do as far as working behind the bar while still maintaining all of our wholesale and stuff like that, it's a little bit of a balancing game, but we're making it work. Listeners can follow you, too, on Facebook and Instagram for, for updates as you continue to take those baby steps towards a fuller opening. Yeah, just best place to follow us is at Lip610 on Instagram. We're, we're posting on that just about daily. Whenever we make any sort of changes in our schedule or if you want to look at any of the delicious things Mel has made for the, uh, the bakery case, definitely pop on to that, to that feed. Great. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and like filling us in on, on the coffee world in South Bethlehem. And we'll encourage everybody to check it out. Even if you're not a coffee drinker, I'm sure you know you have other options there at Lit. And like you said, the great baked goods, too. Oh, yeah. We, we cater to tea lovers as well. <laughs> hey, thanks again. It's my pleasure this week to welcome Vicki Coyle, who is the Chief Executive Officer for Meals on Wheels of the Greater Lehigh Valley, to No Rain Date. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be here. 
Meals on Wheels is certainly a program that has has been around for a while, and I think most people probably have at least some idea of, of what you do, which is like a, a home delivery meal service for a lot of seniors, but also other individuals in need of assistance with that. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Meals on Wheels, and specifically here in the Lehigh Valley? Sure. Meals on Wheels of the greater Lehigh Valley has actually only been in existence for two years, since August of 2018, Hmm. a little over two years. But it was formed in a merger of Meals on Wheels Northampton County and Meals on Wheels Lehigh County, both of which started around 1971-73 between the two of them. Lehigh County actually started first in 1971. Mm -hmm. So we will be celebrating later this year, once COVID has passed, a (laughs) uh, 50th anniversary. Yeah, so for 50 years, the combination of Lehigh and Northampton County Meals on Wheels has been serving homebound adults, mostly seniors and mostly low income in the Lehigh Valley for that long. Wow. That's a lot of meals. <laughs> That's a lot of meals and probably as many volunteers and volunteer deliveries. Yeah. No, I, I did not realize it had been around for that long or, or I wasn't aware of the recent merger either so that's that's good to know was that done just to sort of like streamline things because the county organizations were doing the same thing so yeah pretty much i mean both lehigh and northampton county were doing the same thing they served the same clients pretty much in the same way northampton county had the commercial kitchen and made the food every day and lehigh was buying it from northampton county so you know again it was they were pretty much identical operations, you know, with the exception of, of their own personal flavor and culture that both organizations had. But the logistics really were the same. So it was kind of a no-brainer. It was difficult, though. Mergers usually are. But I think the boards of directors really went about it the right way. And like I said, it happened in August of 18, and we've probably gotten through all the bumps of merger at this point. Our clients really didn't notice any difference because the food was the same. So, you know, that was no difference there. But volunteer process, some of that stuff changed a little bit. But for the most part, it's still the same. Great. So now you you have sort of like one main facility in Bethlehem or the Bethlehem area. Is that right? Yes, we have our main office, well, our only office, is on First Drive in Bethlehem Township, sort of right off of Route 191 near 22 there in the industrial park. We are in the middle of a capital campaign. We're building a new facility on Sherman Street in East Allentown in the Midway Manor neighborhood. And the kitchen will be a lot bigger. So right now, this kitchen has been around since they built this building, probably, I think, in the early 90s. And we've outgrown it a little bit. There are more things that we could do if we had a bigger kitchen. It's kind of difficult for staff to move around in. So... We'll get to a bigger, more open space, and we'll have a cafe there, which will hopefully be a showcase for our food. We'll host some meetings. We'll host things like a memory cafe where folks with, with various dementia issues can come and, and have a safe, safe space to socialize and get some programming. So there's a lot of stuff we'll be able to do with it. Hmm. But it'll be a little more centrally located, too, like I said, in East Allentown versus in right. Bethel Township. So what is the goal for the capital campaign and and how far along are you with it? 
The goal is about two and a half million dollars, and we're probably about a million dollars shy of that at this point. We will be announcing the, the campaign publicly and kind of making a big PR splash about it within a month or so. So you're kind of getting the scoop on that. <laughs> well, we'll definitely want to continue to to cover that and help get the word out when the time comes because I think that's exciting. So keep us posted. In terms of the meal prep, a hundred percent of that is done on site in your kitchen? Yep, we're really proud of that. It is, we have about maybe 20 staff back in the kitchen and they come in at four in the morning and start cooking because our hot meals are prepared hot and fresh every day. So they'll start some prep obviously the day before, but they come in at four in the morning, start cooking, and then at around 7.30 in the morning, they start to actually put it in the containers I hate saying it looks like a conveyor belt, but that's really what it is, just because that sounds more institutional than it really is. But yeah, the staff will fill each tray. There's three compartments in a tray, and they fill it according to each individual client's specifications. So we're getting out about 1,200 plus meals a day, mm. and each of those meals is tailored to you know, a specific person. So Mary Smith on Main Street in Hellertown doesn't want any chicken or beets and so if chicken and beets are on the menu for today she'll get an alternate she won't get food that she's not going to eat same thing if you know joe jones down the road gets hates pork and doesn't want wax beans he will never see those on his menu we take up to 52 different preferences meal preferences per client in order to get people what they want to eat and the reason for that is we comply with the state guidelines for nutrition for older adults. And it's kind of pointless if we, A, make food that tastes really bad, and B, <laughs> make, food, make food that people don't want. Because, you know, I mean, how many times do you go to a buffet and not pick out stuff you, you, know, you don't like? You leave it there. That's what would happen if we served, you know, beets to Mary Jones, and she's not going to eat one-third of her RDA for that meal, and she'll throw it away. So we want people to get the calories and the nutrition from the meal. So we will really do go out of our way and really make the meal production a little bit more complex in order to get people the food that they will actually eat. So in addition to preferences, we have what we call medically tailored meals. So if Mary Jones has diabetes, she'll get a meal that reflects her medical condition. It'll be lower in carbohydrates. If someone has kidney issues, they won't get the leafy green vegetables and things that are higher in in those nutrients that could be a problem. So we will puree food or make it soft if someone has chewing or swallowing issues. Again, the whole point is we want to give people food that they can actually eat. Right. Yeah, because nutrition is is a core, like you said, component of, of what you're doing and they, they can't get nutrition if they're not eating the food. So that's that's yep. amazing. That's that's boggling my mind to think about that many preferences and meeting them on a daily basis. Like I can't even really get coffee for a few people without screwing something up. So um, I know. Right? <laughs> I uh, I tip my hat to you for for being able to to do that. Um, what are some of the what would an average meal include? Like as far as like food items is it like a a starch and a meat and a vegetable kind of or yep yep so it could be macaroni and cheese stewed tomatoes and pears Mm -hmm. that could be one thing 
and then then they get a bag with a juice and bread and fruit usually in it depending what's in the meal to balance it out so they will get a drink and usually like i said a piece of bread to go with it so pasta you know there could be pasta and a sauce and and vegetable and two and two vegetables in that one so mm-hmm. we could have ham green beans pasta or rice or something like that so they make a menu every it rotates every five weeks so people won't see a lot of repetition Unfortunately, the more individual preferences that folks have, the more repetition they're going to see. So if mm-hmm. they say, I never want chicken and I never want pasta, they're going to see like tons of rice and other alternatives. So, so that's where it can get a little boring if people really have a lot of preferences like that. But for right. the most part, the meal, we do about three or three menus a year. And in the summertime, we'll really focus on fresh food. We have what's called a buy fresh by local mm-hmm. we're members of buy fresh by local i mean and we have what's called the better fresh project which is where we buy probably a hundred hundred fifty thousand dollars of fresh local produce from local farmers and incorporate that into our meals so mm. for example the rodale organic farm at st luke's anderson campus you mm-hmm. know they might call us up and say hey we've got a bunch of broccoli this week and then we'll swing over and pick that up and and buy that from them shoals orchard is another one that we deal with twin maple farms so those are just a couple of farms that will you know usually they'll sell to us what they you know the extra stuff that they have from the farmer's market on the weekend so it's kind of a win-win and then we'll you know incorporate it into our menu that's great because i'm sure well it benefits the local farms and i'm sure the flavor too is is even even better when you can get local so yeah you don't have you don't have any of that you know the food doesn't the nutrition nutritional value doesn't degrade right. because it's you know not in the processed system for any length of time. We get it and it goes right into a meal. Right. So so you said you currently have about twelve hundred clients. No, last year we had about two over two thousand unduplicated clients. Okay. Um, we serve about twelve hundred meals a day. A day. So, it's because people come on and off our service. For example, somebody called up today and said. You know, I'm not home for my meal because I'm in the hospital. So that guy will come off. And then he'll, hopefully when he comes home, he'll get the service again. Or people, unfortunately, they pass away or they go into nursing care. And so they no longer need the service. Right. Approximately how many volunteers do you have to to cover those deliveries? And, and how do they do that? They have routes that they normally cover, so they're going to the same houses? Yep. So we have about 2,000 volunteers, and I'd say over 800 of those are active, meaning that they are doing a meal delivery at least once a month. So we have three routes that serve your area. So and by that, I mean like Saucon, Hellertown, and Center Valley. Mm-hmm. Three of those routes, and they serve about 83 clients total. And mm-hmm. so for last year, that was over 10,000 meals in that area. Wow. And generally one person does a route. Sometimes two people do a route, two volunteers. It depends. It just depends really on the personal preference of the volunteer. I've done, when I do a route, I would prefer to go on my own. Some people like to have someone who's a driver and then the other person is the one who gets out and takes the meal up to the house and delivers it. You know, it's really their choice. And during COVID, of course, we've really suggested 
that people only do it by themselves or with someone who's a member of their household, even with a mask on. So, yeah, that's that's their preference. And honestly, I think there have been really great friendships that have come about because folks have delivered meals together. I've heard, met lots of volunteers who said they've met their best friend or couples who now go on vacation together because they met doing volunteer work for Meals on Wheels. So it's really an incredibly fulfilling experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I had the opportunity recently to connect with one of your volunteers, Mr. Phil Fair, who is actually my 11th grade history teacher back when I was at <laughs> Liberty High School too many years ago, but it was great to to see him and hear a little bit about how he's giving back in this way. And, and I know he mentioned, you know, it's it's rewarding to to feel like you are, you know, making a difference in the lives of the people receiving the meals who in many cases don't really get out much. You know, they're not having a lot of contact with people, especially now because of COVID-19. So they're really acting as a lifeline, and, and I, I uh, applaud all the volunteers who, who are doing that, and, and even in these challenging times. Yeah, yeah, those volunteers step it up no matter what. They really do. I mean, they, like, there's sometimes when I look at the weather, and, you know, it's torrential downpour, it's gale force mm-hmm. wind, and they're out there lined up, you know, picking up their meal carriers, heading off to deliver meals, you know, in crazy conditions, whether it's freezing cold or super hot in the summer. And COVID has been, you know, obviously, it goes without saying that it's been a challenge in so many ways, but our volunteers, you know, get as much as they give, and they would be the first ones to agree with that. They really enjoy the relationships that they develop with our clients. Because of COVID, they're doing a quick handoff at the door. You know, they've got their mask on, they hand somebody a meal, and they turn around and leave. They're, they're not staying to talk. They're not going in the house and, and chatting for a few minutes. You know, they've really cut that conversation down quite a bit. And, it, you know, people feel it. it. It's uncomfortable. I know for our clients it is and for our volunteers. And we had a volunteer recently who showed up at a house, and this was a, a client that had a reputation with our volunteers. Everyone loved him. He was a veteran. He just loved seeing the volunteers, was really engaged and wanted to chat with everybody who came. And she came to his apartment and got there with the meal just as the paramedics were taking his body out. He had passed away and, you know, it was really upsetting. And um, as a result, we're kind of creating a program for our volunteers where they, if they do come across that situation, we'll have, have a counselor and have someone available to to help them or another volunteer to help kind of mentor them through that because it's yeah it's really hard you've connected with somebody and then you know you go and you find them on the floor or they're in distress and that's a lot to that's really stressful yeah oh i'm sure and 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 i'm it's good that you're recognizing that and finding or developing a way to help anybody that that deals with that to cope I wanted to also touch on something that was in the news recently, and this is a good this is a good thing. This is a great thing. Meals on Wheels of the Greater Lehigh Valley, rather, is the recipient of a one and a half million dollar grant from Mackenzie Scott, who was sort of 
distributing a lot of wealth to various nonprofit organizations throughout the country. That's a, an incredible gift. And do you have plans for that? Is that going to help towards the uh, capital campaign? Yeah, that was an incredible experience. You know, I, I got an email and then had a few more emails. And it was one of those things where, you you know, I kept saying to myself, is this real? <laughs> you know, is this really happening? Like, this is so bizarre. You know, because I, I, I said, why us? Like, what's the connection with, you know, the little old Meals on Wheels only have alley? Right. And was just told that, you know, we do good work and we're being recognized for our good work. And that may be a little generic sounding, but I'm not arguing with it. And I think <laughs> we do do good work. We, we have really dedicated staff and tons of volunteers to prove it. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to argue with it. So some of it will go probably some of it will go to help us close out our capital campaign so we'll see how we do in the next couple of months with that i anticipate that the board will want some of it to go into our endowment for future sustainability and Mm -hmm. then you know we have some projects that like most nonprofits, they're kind of on your wish list but you really can't ever get to them because operating money always seems to be in short supply so we'll hopefully get a little creative, which will enhance services for clients and the volunteer experience. So we're looking forward to that. Right. Well, at least it gives you some flexibility and because I know uh, funding for nonprofits is often a a challenge and especially in in these times, many have seen donations drop off because of the way the economy is. So probably great timing for that. You mentioned as far as like COVID safety that everybody is required to wear a mask. What other kinds of safety protocols do you have in place? We have several sites, meal drop sites, where our trucks will take meals out to the community. So, and then our volunteers go there. So some people come to our main office and pick up meals. We have a place in the Slate Belt where we drop meals off and the volunteers meet there and up in Cherryville and in Lehigh County. So all those places we, you know, had to say, look, you can't go inside the building anymore. So basically volunteers might have to wait in their cars. They wait outside, socially distant, and when the they get in line basically. Before they used to come into the building if, if it was either in Bethlehem or Allentown. And they could you know, we had coffee and we made announcements and Mm-hmm. We come out and chat, and you know they chat with each other, and that that opportunity for collegiality is you know gone by the wayside right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they line up outside, and they come in the building one by one and pick up their meals. They are wearing masks. We sanitize inside and out of the containers when they come back, and the notebooks that they use for their roots. And we provide hand sanitizer if people want it. Our kitchen staff is all surf safe certified, so that means. They know all the sanitation and hygiene procedures they're supposed to be using, which, quite frankly, were in existence before COVID. So hand washing mm-hmm. and wiping stuff down and all that. You know, they're the heroes because they're in a kitchen that's not climate controlled. Most commercial kitchens aren't. So that means in the summer, they're working through the summer with their masks on and mm-hmm. it's 90 degrees back there by lunchtime. So they're cool back there. Some of the administrative staff we have working off-site. So like our case managers work from home. Some other staff are set up. They come in periodically. They'll work at home. So we've tried to spread the staff on the uh, front of house side out, spread them out a little bit. We don't have as many volunteers coming into the building to help us anymore. We keep it usually just one at a time. And again, they get temperature checked and 
have to sign a form saying they don't have any symptoms, etc. I'm really thrilled that St. Luke's has, starting last week, asked allowed us to come and get vaccinated for COVID. You know, because if my kitchen staff goes down, then we don't get meals made. Right. And we, we do have about five frozen meals out for clients now. So that's one way that we planned in case we had an, an interruption in production. We wanted clients to have some meals available in their freezer so that if we said we needed to deep clean the kitchen for a few days or the office, or if we had too many staff sick, clients would have at least eight days of meals. They have some shelf-stable meals as well. So mm-hmm. they've got at least eight meals to keep them fed until we can get back in line. So we're, you know, they're set, we're set, and now most of us are, have gotten the first vaccine. So hopefully in a few weeks, we'll all be good. Yeah, that's that's great that they coordinated that with you, and definitely you guys are, are front line for sure for what you do, and with so many people depending on you, I'm glad that they did that. I just wanted to close out by you know mentioning your website. It's mowglv.org, and there's a lot of information on there. If you're interested in becoming a volunteer, you have a great FAQ section, which I think could answer probably a lot of questions somebody might have if if they're thinking about doing that. So I would definitely encourage them to uh, check that out. And also, you can make a donation. You can refer or find out more about the the meals and and resources available for somebody that you might know who might be in need. Anything that they should do beyond that or if they want to connect somebody that they think might need meals to your organization? Yep, uh, the website is, is the best place to go. They can also call the office directly if they want to inquire about services and, or volunteer. And that number is 610-691-1030. And that's also on the website. Okay. And, of course, you're on social media as well, right? Facebook and Instagram? or Instagram, yep. What's your uh, handle for Instagram? Oh, shoot. You would ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> My development staff is going to kill me now. <laughs> I can yeah, probably look it up. It, but... tell you, it shows you what an old part I am because <laughs> I barely do it except for going on and checking our site on <laughs> I'm looking it up now. <laughs> I just found it. It's Okay, good. Now I won't get in trouble. M-O-W-G-L-V on Instagram. So now we know, and yeah, great photos, inspiring photos. So check that out. Uh, thank you, Vicki, for joining us. I, I think we've learned a lot, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's, it's so important to our community. Thanks, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to, to talk about our services and brag about our staff and volunteers. It's a great group. Yeah, definitely. And and like I said, keep us posted about the capital campaign so that we can, you know, help you guys get the word out and, and raise some funding this year. Great. We'll do. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? 
feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sawkinsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Saucon Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Every night, he climbs the tower, sees your face on every dollar.